Well, good morning. Uh, <laughs> my name is Pastor John Reddy, and it's my joy to be able to share from the Word of God with you today. Whether you're here in the Corone Theater or you're joining us online in our live cast, my, my hope is that the Word of the Lord penetrates our hearts and it actually moves us in faith and in action. You see, for a number of weeks now, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark as we've been journeying with Jesus, learning how to be followers and disciples of His. Several weeks ago, Pastor Tanner shared from Mark 6. And uh, this morning, I'm going to take us through in the next stage. Would you just bow your heads and pray with me, Lord? Heavenly Father, we just bow before you. We thank you for the generosity that you have with us, for us, the patience you have to bring us along. And I just ask that as we read your word, that it would penetrate our hearts. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Well, when Pastor Tanner uh, started off in Mark 6, we learned that Jesus was rejected. He was rejected in his hometown despite the clear power that was in his teaching. And there we learned that faith, it sort of sees past the surface. It rejoices in the work of God. It, it elevates the honor of Jesus. It, it, it not only does that, but it unlocks the power of God. And when faith is enacted, it moved the heart of Jesus. And so Pastor Turley, a couple weeks ago, asked all of us, is Jesus marveling at your faith? The following week, Pastor Chastain came along, and he continued in Mark 6 where we discovered that the disciples, they were surprisingly sent, and they were challenged to demonstrate the very kind of faith that we had learned about the week before. The disciples were told to go in the authority of Jesus, and while they were going, to trust in his provision. As they went, they were to imitate the ministry of Jesus. Even as they counted the severe cost of following him, and always operating in the confidence of God's unstoppable mission. And so, concluding, Pastor Chastine reminded us that we too are to be like the original disciples and we're to live every day sent. As followers of Jesus, he encouraged us to live in what he called the multiplication middle, where we live with Jesus in presence and intimacy even as we are sent by Jesus to go and minister to those that he is in pursuit about and cares greatly. And so that brings us to this morning's reading in Mark chapter 6, where Jesus now does kind of a pop quiz with his disciples, a check back, if you will. And in the process of the tests that we're going to see, Jesus reveals his heart of deep compassion and his merciful action, not only to the disciples themselves, but to the ones that the disciples were sent to as well. And my hope is we in, in discover these stories that we'll actually discover some of our next steps in our spiritual journeys as well. So if you would open your Bibles and turn on your smartphones to Mark chapter 6, we're going to pick up reading from verse 30. There it says, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them and they ran there on foot from all of the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy them something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. 
And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing, and broke the loaves, and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of fish, and those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening had come, the boat was out of sea, out at sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And, the word says, as many as touched it were made well. Would you just bow your heads and and, and repeat after me as I pray? Heavenly Father, speak to my heart and change my life. Throughout Mark's Gospel, a recurrent question raised by witnessing, teaching, and miracles, and ministry of Jesus was, who is this man? Some who spoke it, spoke it from confusion. Some spoke from objection. Some spoke from hopeful faith. Perhaps some of you that are here today at Medford High School or viewing online are asking the very same question. Who is this man? Well, the three stories that we just finished reading offer, I think, some powerful insight into that question. Let me explain. My first encouragement for us this morning is that the Jesus we read about today, he's the one who sees the needs of others through his compassionate heart. In our first story, if we go back and we look at verse 34, despite his desire to seek solitude and rest, Jesus comes ashore and he sees a great crowd. And Mark makes it clear. And he had compassion on them. Why? Why did Jesus have that response? Well, Mark tells us, immediately he says, because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. This echoes the time when Moses, understanding that he would not see the promised land, asked God to appoint someone who could succeed him and lead Israel out of the wilderness that the congregation of the Lord may not be as a sheep that has no shepherd. Numbers 27. You see, Moses loved the people of Israel and he rightly recognized that they had a need for godly spiritual leadership. 
And in our story today, Jesus likewise sees the profound spiritual need of the great crowds that had been gathering. And, and this great need, it was not a new story. Many of the prophets had been instructed by God to confront failing Israel leaders over hundreds of years. Ezekiel had prophesied as such. Listen to this. The accusation was, the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injures you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled over them. And so they were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. Ezekiel says, my sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with no one to seek and to search for them. And so in our story this morning, recognizing that this great need that Moses saw and that Ezekiel prophesied about still existed. And Mark says that Jesus' heart was moved. He saw that the void of godly spiritual leadership was leaving a huge, gaping, unmet need, and it moved him. If we look down in verse 28, Mark tells us that after that, the disciples were sailing across the water, and Jesus was now isolated and alone. But it says that he saw that they were making headway painfully. Why? For the wind was against them. Time doesn't allow me to describe all the factors that would have made that a fearsome occurrence. But trust me, they were in peril. But Jesus, Mark says, was alert. Mark says that he was paying attention, that, that he was looking out for them. And even as he went to them, he recognized their terror. He saw their need for rescue, their need for physical safety. He saw their need for reassurance and their emotional safety too. You see, Jesus' capacity to see the needs of others and experience heartfelt compassion should not surprise us. All four of the Gospels attest, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that Jesus was God come in the flesh. He was the Emmanuel of Christmas, the God with us. And because Jesus is God, Jesus has all of the attributes of God, including the attribute or the quality or the nature of compassion. You see, we need to understand that Jesus just doesn't experience compassion. Jesus is compassion. It's part of his very nature. The psalmist declares, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious. Lamentation says, the steadfast love of the Lord, listen, never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. We're reminded by Isaiah that the Lord waits to be gracious to us. And therefore, listen to this, he exalts himself to show you mercy. The psalmist tells us, the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made for he is the creator and sustainer of all things. When confronting Israel, the, the prophet Isaiah, God tells him to tell everyone that his compassion for them, listen to this, grows warm and tender. And Micah finishes for those of us that struggle by reminding us he will again have compassion on us. I think you get the picture. Jesus has compassion because Jesus is compassion. And it never stops. He delights in seizing opportunities to display that compassion. 
He executes it over all that he has ever created. Showing mercy gives our Jesus pleasure and brings glory to his name. It shows us who he is. It's warm. It's tender. It's available again and again and again. And so therefore Jesus, whenever he sees us, he sees us through his compassionate heart. My prayer for us this morning is that those of us gathered would have no doubt ever about his great compassion for us and his great compassion for others as well. It brings me to my second brief encouragement that Jesus, he unlocks the power of God in the midst of faithful deeds of mercy. Look back on our gospel reading and think with me. When Jesus recognized that the great crowd was like a sheep without a shepherd, he not only responded by feeling compassion, but he responded by doing compassion. You see, in light of their great spiritual need, Mark says in verse 34 that he began to teach them many things like a godly spiritual leader should. There, just imagine the gathering of the feeding of the 5,000. Picture that in your mind. There he assumes his role as the good shepherd that Psalm 23 tells us about. He makes them lie down in green pastures. He restores their soul. He leads them in paths of righteousness for his namesake. It's the same Jesus who later in the Gospel of John declares, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me. You see, after a long day of teaching this, this, this great crowd, his disciples come to him and they rightfully point out that there's kind of an emergency coming. There's an issue of what I'll call later food insecurity or hunger. And they offer to Jesus a proposition that is faithless. They say, send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Jesus, like is his nature, responds with a with a patient opportunity, just like he does with us, an opportunity for his disciples to begin to exercise faithful imitation of what they've seen him doing all throughout the Gospel of Mark. You give them something to eat, he says, for he intends for them to act upon what they've observed. Mercy applied by Jesus, compassionately, over and over and over again. And with a little sarcasm, because 200 denarii is a lot of money, they fail to capture the truth that when we serve others in the authority and the compassion of Jesus, we can also trust him in his provision with confidence. They fail that test. But rather than let the need go unmet, Jesus then acts in power. And we read in the feeding of the 5,000 that through a powerful manifestation of the miraculous, he takes five loaves and, and two fish and he consecrates them as he looks up to heaven and he says a blessing. And then he multiplies the little amount that was offered to meet the great need that seemed impossible. Mark tells us that more than 5,000 people had their hunger satisfied that night. For he says they all ate and were satisfied. In our second story, 
when his disciples got into trouble crossing the water, we can see that Jesus not only observed their distress, but it says about the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them. He left what he was doing and he moved to meet their need. And again, to initiate this great act of mercy, he performs another miracle. Walking on the sea shouldn't be an impossible act for the one who actually created it. You would think that after seeing Jesus' miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, that those disciples would have had great confidence. But Mark tells us that that wasn't the case. It says that instead they were terrified. And so again, in another act of compassion, do you see them starting to pile up? Jesus calls out to them, personally. And he calms their emotional hearts. Take heart, Jesus says. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Mark says that he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. You see, Jesus' mercy even extended into preserving their physical safety by commanding the very forces of nature. Again and again and again and again and again and again throughout Mark's whole gospel from what we've read already to what we're going to read going forward, we see that whenever Jesus encounters great need, whether it's in individuals or small groups or even great crowds, because Jesus is compassion, Jesus does compassion. The writer Mark ends this section of his gospel, beginning in verse 53, with a little bit of a summary of the recurring reality that the disciples are starting to see. For it says, crossing over to Gennesaret, many people with great need, again, there's that volume of need, they see him and the word spreads and the sick are brought to wherever he is and why are they brought? That they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And Mark is careful to say, and as many as touched it were made well. I can't help but wonder, for those that were sick that were laying there, if they thought about this good shepherd of Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So my prayer for us this morning is that when we look to Jesus, that we, we see the connection between feeling compassion and actually doing compassion. And I hope that when we do, we lean in and trust that God's provision will be there even as we step out in faith with whatever little we may think we have. And that brings me to what I, I, I'm hoping that we can grasp as the people of God gathered here today. You see, imitating the compassionate heart of Jesus, we desperately need to recognize the needs that are around us. And we need to offer faithful deeds of mercy. But we need to do it confident. Not in ourselves. We need to do it confident of his authority, his provision, and his power. I want you to think for a second with me of the parable of the Good Samaritan. I don't have the time to read it in its entirety, but it's, it's familiar to many of us. In a response to a question that was asked by an expert in Jewish law, Jesus tells this story that I think many of us have heard 
of a man who was traveling and he was attacked by robbers and he was beaten and he was left for dead. And there was no doubt by anyone who heard this story of this man's great need. If you remember, there were two different religious Jews passing by at two different times. They observed the plight of the victim. They saw the need and yet it's clear they avoided any contact and they continued on their way. And finally, we're told that the most unlikely person of all, a Samaritan, someone perceived as an enemy, sees the need, intervenes, and as a result is commended by Jesus for demonstrating true mercy, complete mercy. Because I think in this story, Jesus wanted us to see that the Samaritan not only saw the man's need and, and felt compassion, but he sprung into action as he offered care. And he counted the cost because it cost him his time. It cost him his finances, we're told. It cost him everything. And he even went beyond what was convenient. For he made provisions that any ongoing needs would be done over time. He was committed. And then in telling this story to this Jewish legal expert, Jesus looked to him and he challenged him. And he said, now go and do the same. And for those of us that are gathered, I just think that across the centuries, Jesus asks us not just to identify with the story, but I, I think he actually points to each one of us and says, now that you know, go. Go and do the same. It begs the question, how do we go and do the same? Uh, this morning when you were driving here, I doubt that you saw somebody at the roadside. Maybe you did. Hope you stopped. But how can we, the people of God, live every day sent, as Pastor Chastine challenged us, in mercy, sent in compassion? Well, I like what uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church has developed as a, as a way to think of it. They have what they call the mercy journey map. It's, it's their intent to identify some attitudes and some actions that we could strive for uh, wherever God has placed us and with whomever we encountered. And this is how it kind of progresses. They argue, and I think correctly, it's got to first start in our hearts. You see, we should reflect and we should be transformed by God as we have experiences and biblical truths saturate our souls that shape our understanding of mercy. That, my friends, is what one million minutes with God should do for us. As we collectively and in our homes individually commit time of word and prayer with the Jesus who is compassion it only holds that our hearts will be transformed under his tutelage. And then, as our hearts are transformed, then we can probably exercise it in our homes where we can examine and, and we can act as mercy shows itself up in our daily lives and in our close relationships. I can't think of a better place for us to start acting merciful, to start acting compassionate, than in the very place that we spend the vast majority of our time. And of course, I think that we would want to extend mercy in the life of the church. We should teach, which is what we're doing this morning, but we should also embody mercy as a new people of faith. Last week was awesome with the baptisms as we witnessed people testifying to their faith in Christ and their adoption into this new family of God and part of being part of that new family, that new community, is that we need to live with compassion as one of our hallmarks amongst each other. But we've got to be careful. We have to make sure that we don't just stop there. We need to make sure that in our community, we're prepared to champion and to offer deeds of mercy, deeds of compassion, and deeds of justice to the world around us. That's that multiplication um, Middle, that again, I've referred to, being with Jesus so that we can then go take compassion to those that need it. And so for the last couple of minutes, 
I'd like to just focus in on this last point as we think about ourselves as a church. Hopefully there's a graphic behind me and, and there's, there's many ways that we can go out as a church and we can do mercy. We can do it as individuals. We can do it within our groups that we gather. And we can do it corporately as the body of Christ. Recently, our elders and our staff and our leaders have been wrestling with the question of how are we going to focus our attention corporately? Certainly, we have 10 years of experience as a church. We took some time and talked with members of our community. We tried to pay attention to what are the pain points that our communities are uh, experiencing. And certainly, we've devoted hours of intercessory prayer trying to understand. And through that, we've identified and we've sort of uh, um, clarified some needs to help us to prioritize, to focus our attention and to figure out how to cooperate amongst each other. We looked, and I want you to listen to this, praying that we would see the hurting in the broken the same way that the Samaritan saw the man on the side of the road. And all the while asking that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes to show us opportunities to be instruments of His mercy and we ask that so we could then wisely invest and act. Act with our calendars as a church. Act with our leadership. Act with our congregation. Act with our finances. And so I'm going to share with you what we've identified as what I'll call the sweet spot of intersection. Where our efforts as individuals and groups and church all can come together. In our, in our um, time together, it seemed wise for us to identify three levels of alignment. And the first one is based on some key principles. We have a long-standing history of what we like to call here Serve Medford, where we elevate local priorities, where we celebrate that God has placed us in the city for the city. We went to community leaders. We asked them to tell us what they saw as great needs. Where did they need help? Where's their gaps? As we wrestled with what we would emphasize, what seemed to have the greatest potential for all of us to be mobilized? Where can we find opportunities to contribute? What are we good at? What has God given us as giftedness as a church? And then what places appear ripe? for cooperation and partnership with both Christian and non-Christian allies. And so level one priorities emerged. We intend to focus local. We think they offer opportunities for broad participation, for each one of us to engage. We hunted for people and situations that were overlooked or most vulnerable. And we're determined to organize our calendar, our money, and our efforts around these issues. The first area of level one focus is what I call food insecurity or hunger. And this, if you've been around Redemption Hill long enough, this shouldn't surprise you, especially given this morning's scripture. It was Jesus himself who said, you give them something to eat. That's what he told his disciples, and we feel like that's what he's telling us. Since our beginning, Redemption Hill has had a commitment to seeing that folks who are hungry receive food. Food, after all, is a basic necessity of life. During my time on the Medford Food Insecurity Task Force, I've learned firsthand that there are, despite what some of you may think, significant pockets of hunger in our community that still exist and are unmet. And so we're proud. Every year, our congregation, if you're new to Redemption Hill Church, you may not know this, but we work to personally distribute full meals during our turkey giveaway process in November through the Medford Housing Authority. Uh, we address low-income families that have asked us for help. And last November, we gave almost 150 meals away. On a lot of our Super Bowl Sundays, we've rallied to collect uh, canned soup that we can distribute. And what a blessing it's been for me personally when I see children walk through the door 
in just a simple act of doing compassion when they've brought something from their home's cabinet to offer to somebody else. Some of you here have helped to renovate the Hope Chest, a food pantry that's located right here in Medford High School because there are students that are at risk for hunger. When the pandemic hit over a year ago, many of you volunteered at the newly established Mystic Community Market, the food pantry on Mystic Avenue here in Medford. And, and what a blessing it was to, to see you assembling bags of groceries or then handing them out to families that if you weren't there, a line of cars was around the block. One afternoon, over 400 cars were served on that day. And what I would tell you and what the elders would tell you is we've only just begun for the need is great and the potential to impact hunger in Greater Medford remains. The second area of level one focus is addressing foster care. Raise your hand, did, did, did you know that May is National Foster Care Awareness Month? Anybody? All right, some of you, all right, good for you. Well, for those of you that didn't know, May is National Foster Care Awareness Month. And let me share with you what I learned from a Christian organization that addresses foster care. Uh, currently in the United States, there's about 425,000 youth that are living in foster care. Think about that for a second. Over 400,000 youth. Most of them have experienced, or many of them, painful traumas like abuse and neglect, food insecurity, homelessness. Often, these are children that are pushed to the margin they're forgotten, sometimes just reduced to a statistical category. But in reality, as followers of Christ, each one of them we know is a unique person with an inherent dignity that is worthy of care. Each one is a real kid in real crisis who needs real love. And so our heart's desire is to help each child have a safe and supported foster family that can provide supportive care until family reunification occurs. And if reunification isn't possible, then those children are going to need somebody who's prepared to permanently adopt them. What breaks my heart, what's sad to know, is that for many, reunification or adoption doesn't occur, and oftentimes youth age out of the system by the age of 18, or in some states, 21, with very little emotional and uh, support available to them once they're left. Well, we live in Massachusetts, so let me be a little more specific about our situation here in Massachusetts. <clears throat> in the last year of uh, data that I could find, in 2019, 80% of the children, the good news is 80% of the children that are being managed by the Department of Children and Families are on reunification plans in their homes and they're receiving support, but that still leaves 10,000 children placed in out-of-home care, whether it's foster care or uh, group homes. 80% of those children are ages birth to 17. Of those that are placed, about half of them are fortunate to be placed with families or what's called kinship placement. And that leaves thousands of children in Massachusetts who don't have a safe place to live unless there's a foster family who's unrelated prepared to take them in. There's a number of ways that we can help. The most obvious choice is that you can choose to open your home to foster care. I'm so proud that many of our homes have chosen to do that. Some of you know that Teresa and I have done foster care three times in our life are thankful. There's a number of families here that have done that as well. And not just families, but also uh, single head of households have done that as well. So don't think for a moment that you have to be married in order to love. Your next step today may be to talk to anyone that's involved in that or to investigate MAP training where you can learn more about how to be certified to do that. If that's not where you're headed, you can choose to support foster care families who are already serving sacrificially. First thing to do is in your community groups, pay attention to those individuals, identify what their needs are, and just simply organically move to meet their needs. 
If you're interested in a more formal arrangement, we assemble what we call support one teams, where a group of people identify a foster family within our church and then actually provide additional help and services, kind of a buffer team. If you can't do that, you could directly uh, support a foster care child. A, a simple way, I'm told, is that oftentimes children are taken and need to be placed in a foster care home at the last minute, and many times they don't have the clothing or the supplies or the diapers that they need, and so there's ministries like the Foster Box that puts those things together and um, provides them for foster homes. Or you could spend time with a foster care child. You could choose, I want you to listen to me carefully, to support birth families who children are in foster care or have been in foster care. Let's not forget that many of the foster care placements that take place, family reunification is the goal. And these are parents that are under stress. We want to come alongside them. We want to encourage them. When possible, we want to disciple them. My prayer is that when a parent who has a child in foster care encounters Redemption Hill Church, that they see our church as a place of hope and a place of redemption, not a place of adversary, not full of judgment, and not full of rejection. And so that can be part of what you do. There's ways that we can support the Department of Children and Families, and we're investigating um, some of those options for you. There's Christian uh, foster care agencies in eastern Massachusetts, like Fostering Hope in the Foster Box. Something simple. They need volunteers that sometimes can simply pick up some supplies and move them to an emergency placement. Either way, as we continue to organize around many of these opportunities, I just, I just encourage you to consider not just thinking about foster care, but actually finding even a small step that you can take in acting on foster care. The third area of focus that, that we've identified as elders and leaders is to speak to the crisis of addiction recovery. Drug and alcohol addiction is, I think, strangling eastern Massachusetts. And for this, I'm going to spare all of us a long list of statistics that illustrate that point. Why? Why am I going to spare us? Well, I'm confident, like I have no doubt, that in this room and watching online, that there is no one who hasn't personally been affected by its impact. Whether you have struggled or you are struggling with an addiction, or whether you have someone you dearly love or care about, we have all experienced the oppression that this crisis brings. And so while there's a range of treatment options that are listed, if you just go to Google and you can find some pop up, here's the truth. They're not enough. The need can be overwhelming. And in the midst of this crisis, in, even in our location, there's a shortage of Christian voices that are speaking up and that are giving hope. And so let me just be frank here. Let me just confess as an elder. Today, we don't know exactly how we're going to respond to this particular issue as a congregation. But we see the problem, and we're sounding the call. And over the next few months and years, we hope to rally Redemption Hill Church to do something powerful and something compassionate. And it's going to require a lot from us. Let's not kid ourselves. It, it can be a tough area of ministry. It can be rewarding. And sometimes we feel like we're under-resourced to address it. Sometimes it feels like all we have is, I don't know, five loaves and two fish. But we're committed to offer to the Lord our five loaves and our two fish. And as a body of Christ, we're going to trust him to multiply it. We're going to trust him so that all can eat and be satisfied. 
There's so many other places of need that surround us. And some of them I don't have enough time to go through, but you'll see that we're not going to ignore everything else that's out there. We recognize that there are going to be some areas where we have to raise awareness, or maybe you have a heartbeat as an individual and you need help connecting to it. Example of that might be human sex trafficking with our partner, Amira. We're going to do our best as elders to raise those opportunities. We get bombarded with requests to address lots of needs as a church. A lot of them are noble. Some of them are brought to our attention by you, praise God. And while we can only respond and address to some of them corporately as a church, we do want to create pathways of awareness and opportunity for as many of them as possible so that when God is tugging at your heartstrings, there's no barrier to going out and doing the same. And so going forward, you can expect that sometimes we're going to offer what I call courtesy alerts. We're going to share information with you. Maybe we're going to offer some referrals. We'll define some pathways that you can plug into. Some of them are going to be within our own denomination, some with other like-minded organizations. We're going to make it easy through our website or through some of our gatherings on how to do that. Sometimes when we preach, we'll share. Sometimes when something difficult is happening, sometimes when our community is screaming for help. Those opportunities can run the range from disaster relief to housing insecurity to literacy to refugee care to some kind of emerging emergency like a traumatic house fire. The possibilities, they're endless. Why? Because we live in a broken world where human need can appear endless. In the end, whether we choose to focus and impact what I called level one, mercy opportunities, or work with compassion organizations, or help to connect individuals to areas of their personal passions, it's our desire as elders to lead us well as we act as the body of Christ, committed to merciful action. And so by now, I, I, I hope that we can all agree that God does in fact have a massive heart of compassion for those that are hurting. Socially, emotionally, physically, spiritually, economically. In our three stories today, from Jesus' deeds of mercy to feeding many hungry on a hillside to his act of mercy of rescuing his terrified disciples on an overwhelmed boat. And his, his just consistent willingness to heal the sick. We can see compassion in action, not just restrained to awareness or to sympathy, but actually moving out in direct and merciful acts. And I hope that as a result of experiencing his mercy and seeing his example in today's scripture, we take what we know by being with him and we accept the privilege of being sent to the ones who need compassion also. But I have a concern. I have a fear. Author Eugene Cho got me thinking when he wrote this. We live in a world and culture in which, both out of privilege and conviction, many people want to make an impact. This is good. In fact, this is really good. This desire needs to be affirmed, nurtured, and cultivated. However, let's be honest with ourselves. We all love justice and compassion. Seriously, who doesn't? But is it possible we are more in love with the idea of compassion and justice than we are with actually putting it into practice? 
Is it possible that we all love compassion and justice until there's a personal cost to living compassionately, loving mercy, and seeking justice? You see, I suspect that in our mercy journey, we can become convinced in our hearts of the value of compassion. I'm guessing that in our homes, we're probably motivated have moments of kindness and service to those that we love. I'm even sure that here at Redemption Hill Church, that as we grow in faith, we're going to care for each other well. But the question remains for us, will we actually experience Jesus' discipleship challenge to have his heart and to become his hands of mercy to a world that is really hurting? This afternoon, I'm going to send all of us a little email. And in that email, it'll only take you a couple minutes to look at. I'm going to suggest a number of simple, accessible ways that at least today, we can all hear the truth of the scripture and make at least one small step. Jesus, the word tells us, did compassion because Jesus, the word tells us, is compassion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, even as we humbly ask that you change our hearts to be more merciful like you, and as we ask that you change our eyes that we can see others like you, that you change our actions so that your dominion is experienced by those who need your compassion. We humbly ask this in the precious name of Jesus, the one who feeds the hungry, the one who rescues the terrified, and the one who heals the sick. For it's in his name we pray. Amen and amen.